Chapter Two, Part Two of Christian Non-Resistance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Two, Part Two of Christian Non-Resistance in All Its Important Bearings, Illustrated and Defended by Aidan Ballou. Apostolic Testimonies. The apostles, having been gradually delivered from their early traditionary and educational predispositions for a temporal and military kingdom, renounced all carnal weapons, and, drinking in the heavenly inspiration, reiterated the non-resistance doctrine of their master. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Bless them which persecute you. Bless, and curse not. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12 verses 2, 14, 17, and 19 through 21. Dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 7. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and everything that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 3-5 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22-25 Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Let all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 31. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Colossians 3, verse 12. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. Let us run with patience the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verses 1, 2, 3, and 14. My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. 
For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. James 1, verses 19 and 20. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, verses 1 and 7. This is thankworthy, if a man from conscience towards God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well, and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who was when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. 1 Peter 2, verses 19-23 through 23. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. 1 Peter 3, verses 13, 14, 17, and 18. Also, 1 Peter 4, verses 13 through 19. He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also to walk even as he walked. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his mind. 1 John 2, verses 6 and 11. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 3, verses 14 and 15. No man hath seen God at any time. If ye love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? 1 John 4, verses 12 and 20. General View of the Evidence Is it possible to read these quotations without an irresistible conviction of their perfect harmony with the teachings of the Saviour on this great subject? Can we doubt that they all proceeded from the same divine source? And now what was the example of Jesus? What was the practice of the apostles after the resurrection of Christ, when fully imbued with power and grace from on high? Did they ever slay any human being? Ever threaten to do so? Ever make use of any deadly weapon? Ever serve in the army or navy of any nation, state, or chieftain? Ever seek or accept any office, legislative, judicial, or executive, under the existing governments of their day? Ever make complaint to the magistrates against any offender or criminal in order to procure his punishment? Ever commence any prosecution at law to obtain redress of grievances? Ever apply to the civil or military authority to protect them by force of arms when in imminent danger? Or ever counsel others to do any one of these acts? Did they ever express by word or deed their reliance on political, military, or penal power to secure personal protection, or to carry forward the Christianization of the world? I answer confidently, no. But let everyone be fully persuaded in his own mind. Let the New Testament be thoroughly searched with reference to these questions. If it shall be found that I am correct, let the opposers of non-resistance make up their minds to yield. For if precept and practice, spirit and example, 
go together throughout the scriptures of the New Testament, the case is decided beyond controversy. I am aware of the objections urged with so much desperation from such texts as that which speaks of the scourge of small cords, that which mentions the direction of Jesus to buy swords, Paul's appeal to Caesar, his notification of the chief captain when the forty men conspired to slay him, the thirteenth chapter of Romans, etc. Neither of these, nor all of them together, will serve the objector's purpose, as I shall demonstrate in the next chapter. On the other hand, we are able to show a series of examples, indeed a life, conformable to the doctrine of non-resistance, and we are also able to show that this doctrine practically prevailed among the primitive Christians for a considerable time subsequent to the apostolic age. Look at Jesus in the temptation. He was offered all the kingdoms of the world. But on what condition? Provided only he would fall down and worship the tempter. Is not this essentially the condition on which his followers have ever been offered worldly political power? There is a spirit which animates and characterizes carnal human government. It is the destroying spirit, the angel of injury, the old serpent of violence. This is the grand controlling power underneath the throne, the dernier resort, the ultimate indispensable reliance of all mere worldly authority, and he is accounted a fool who supposes there can be any such thing as government among mankind without it. Consequently, its solemn acknowledgment is now, as ever, the condition on which men must take the scepter, or assume the seals of office. He who would rule must first worship this genius of violence, must swear to support his authority with sword and penal vengeance. Jesus chose the pain and shame of the cross, in preference to the fame and glory of universal empire on such a condition. It was no inducement with him that all the world should take his name, and verbally confess him Lord, while at heart and in practice they served the evil spirit. He would not be a king of nations, when he could not be a king of hearts and consciences. He would not do evil that good might come, because his kingdom was not of this world, he was essentially one of righteousness and peace. So he spurned an offered scepter, and left it in hands which he knew would ere long baptize him in his own non-resistant blood. For the same reason, when he perceived the determination of the people to proclaim him a king, he promptly placed himself beyond their reach. Nor would he be a judge and a divider among the people. Nor when he alone stood up in innocence to pass a rightful condemnation on the adulterous woman, would he pronounce the deadly sentence, or raise the destroying stone, when a violent multitude, led on by his betrayer, came to seize him in the prayerful solitude of Gethsemane. He raised not a weapon of defense, but he rebuked his mistaken disciple for drawing the sword, healed the wound he had inflicted, and taught him that all who take must perish with the sword. So he suffered himself to be led as a sheep dumb before the shearers, and as a lamb to the slaughter. They stripped him of his raiment, attired him in a mock royal robe, crowned him with thorns, smote him, spit upon him, sentenced him without cause to death, nailed him to the cross between two malefactors, tormented him in his agonies, and followed him to the verge of life with all the venom of a murderous hate. Yet never a word of threatening, reviling, cursing, or bitterness escaped him. With a meek and sorrowful dignity he bore all, and at the moment when he could have summoned legions of angels to his rescue, and to the destruction of his foes, lo, he uttered that last victorious prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The morning heavens in silence heard. Then came the expiring groan, not to seal the just perdition of a murderous world, 
but as the awful amen of the new covenant, and the signal of complete triumph over hatred, sin, and death. THE PRIMITIVE CHRISTIANS If we enter among the evangelists and apostles of the crucified, and inquire how they lived and died, what will be the response? God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed unto death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. Being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things. Stephen was stoned to death, calling on the Saviour to receive his spirit, and with the holy prayer on his lips. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. James was slain with the sword, Peter crucified, Paul beheaded, and innumerable martyrs brought to seal their testimony with their blood. But in those days they suffered all things for the sake of the cross, and inflicted nothing. Always heroic for the truth, yet meek, patient, and non-resistant, they exemplified in a wonderful manner the depth and strength of their Christian principles. Never do we find their aspiring to places of power, never distinguishing themselves in the army, never wheedling and coaxing the worldly great to shed on them the renown of their official influence, never engaged in rebellions, riots, tumults, or seditions, never trusting in carnal weapons for the security of their persons, not even in the most barbarous and ruffian-like society, never cursing, reviling, or insulting even their persecutors. Such were the apostles and primitive Christians. They had learned of Jesus, and non-resistance for the first two centuries was the practical orthodoxy of the church. Justin Martyr, early in the second century, declared the devil to be the author of all war. Tertullian denounced the bearing of arms, saying, Shall he who is not to avenge his own wrongs be instrumental in bringing others into chains, imprisonment, torture, death? Lactantius declares, It can never be lawful for a righteous man to go to war, whose warfare is in righteousness itself. We find, says Clarkson, from Athenagoras and other early writers, that the Christians of their times abstained, when they were struck, from striking again, and that they carried their principles so far as even to refuse to go to law with those who injured them. The language of those primitive Christians was in this strain. One says, It is not lawful for a Christian to bear arms. Another, Because I am a Christian, I have abandoned my profession of a soldier. A third, I am a Christian, and therefore I cannot fight. A fourth, Maximilian, I cannot fight. If I die, I am not a soldier of this world, but a soldier of God. And in his fidelity, he died by the hands of military tyranny. Testimony of Celsus and Gibbon Celsus, a heathen philosopher, wrote an elaborate work against the Christians, about the middle of the second century. One of his grave allegations was in the following words, You will not bear arms in the service of the empire when your services are needed, and if all the nations should act upon this principle, the empire would be overrun by the barbarians. Gibbon, the popular English historian of the declining Roman Empire, a skeptic as to Christianity, incidentally confirms the fact that the early Christians were unequivocal non-resistance. The deference of our persons and property they knew not how to reconcile with the patient doctrine that enjoined an unlimited forgiveness of past injuries, and commanded them to invite fresh insults. Their simplicity was offended by the use of oaths, by the pomp of magistracy, 
and by the active contention of public life, nor could their humane ignorance be convinced that it was lawful, on any occasion, to shed blood of their fellow-creatures, either by the sword of justice or that of war, even though their criminal and hostile attempts should threaten the whole community. They felt and confessed that such institutions, life-taking, etc., might be necessary for the present system of the world, and they cheerfully submitted to the authority of their pagan governors. But while they inculcated the maxims of passive obedience, they refused to take any active part in the civil administration or military defense of the empire. Volume 1, page 24. The humble Christians were sent into the world as sheep among wolves, and since they were not permitted to employ force, even in the defense of their religion, they deemed that they should be still more criminal, if they were tempted to shed the blood of their fellow-creatures, in disputing the vain privileges or the sordid possessions of this transitory life. Faithful to the doctrine of the Apostle, who in the reign of Nero had preached the duty of unconditional submission, the Christians of the three first centuries preserved their conscience pure and innocent of the guilt of secret conspiracy or open rebellion. While they experienced the rigor of persecution, they were never provoked either to meet their tyrants in the field, or indignantly to withdraw themselves into some remote or sequestered corner of the globe. Volume 2, page 200. Can there be any doubt that Jesus Christ, his apostles, and the primitive Christians held, taught, and exemplified the doctrine for which I am contending? Is not the scriptural proof of its truth abundant, positive, unequivocal, and irresistible? It seems to me that it is. I therefore commend what has been submitted to the deliberate consideration of all candid minds, whose veneration for and attachment to the scriptures give their testimony the least weight in determining such a question. End of chapter 2, part 2